Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. Hello and welcome. My name is Jared Mills. I'm a fiction librarian here at the Seattle Public Library. Welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Um, it's a pleasure to have Kate Wilhelm here to discuss her new book, Whisper Her Name. Thank you to the University Bookstore um, for being here at the event, um, to the Seattle Times for their generous promotional support for library programs. And finally, a special thank you to the Seattle Public Library Foundation, whose support makes possible so many of our free library programs. Kate Willem's first story was published in 1956. She's contributed to Quirk, Orbit, Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Locus, Amazing Stories, Asimov Science Fiction, Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Fantastic, Omni, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Red Book, and Cosmopolitan. Over the span of her career, Wilhelm's writing has crossed over many genres and mediums. Her work has been is being adapted has been adapted for stage, television, radio, and movies in the United States, England, and Germany, and have been translated into more than a dozen languages. Uh, Infinity Box Theater is presenting a world premiere stage adaptation of her story, Ladies and Gentlemen. This is your crisis. Uh, at the Ethnic Cultural Theater, and Kate is in Seattle for opening night, which is today. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to Kate Wilhelm. Well, thank all of you for coming. It's always a pleasure to have actual readers here. Sometimes only three show up. <laughs> so I appreciate it. If you can't hear me, tell me, and I'll have somebody do something about this. <laughs> What I'm going to read today is uh, the opening chapter of a new novel that hasn't been published yet. It will come out in ebook format from Infinity Box Press in the next week or so. And it's a Charlie and Constance story. They're series characters, a man and wife, detective uh, couple that I've enjoyed writing about for oh, 20 years or so. I keep coming back to them every once in a while and then abandon them until I come back to them again. And strangely, they never age. <laughs> I do, but they never change. They're same as they were 25 years ago, which is something of a miracle. So I can do miracles on paper. So the name of this is Whisper Her Name. Constance glanced up from cutting lemon wedges when Charlie walked through the kitchen carrying a floor pan. He grunted something unintelligible as he continued on to the back porch. Moments later, he returned and stood glaring at her. This time, you're not going to talk me out of it, he said. All right, she said agreeably. She rinsed and dried her hands and added the plate of lemon wedges to the tray she had prepared. Lemonade, iced tea, glasses, spoons, napkins, sugar. She nodded and took the tray to the porch, where she put it on a glass-top table. Following her out, Charlie said, 
I'll call Hank on Monday. Her only response was, hmm. It wasn't fair, he thought bitterly. It was hot as hell. He was hot as hell. And she, cool as ever, was arranging a tea party. She was wearing a sleeveless pale blue top over ivory-colored pants, sandals, and she looked like a damn model, not a wife of 25-plus years, and certainly not like a psychologist. Even her hair, almost platinum, just the way it always had been, belied her years, since a few new white hairs matched so closely her natural hair. Regarding her, his, his scowl smoothed out as another thought surged. She was the most beautiful and the sexiest woman he had ever seen, always had been and still was. It's really quite nice out here, isn't it, she said, turning her gaze toward him. Her eyes were the same pale blue as the top she wore. He had to admit that the porch was okay, maybe even nice, with the ceiling fan and the floor fan both humming, clematis shading the western side, and jasmine perfuming the air. The flower bed was riotous with color, dead-looking cats sprawled in shade patches, and butterflies were plying their trade among the flowers. I'm still going to call Hank, he muttered. Hank owned a heating and air conditioning business. Every summer, Charlie resolved to get him out to the house and install A.C., but somehow it never happened. This year it would, he told himself. Then, thinking of air conditioning and the window unit in their bedroom, he said, let's give these guys the bum rush pronto-like. Whatever you say, she said with a faint smile. She glanced toward the door and added, I think they've arrived. Constance knew that it wasn't the heat bothering Charlie as much as boredom. No grass to cut or snow to blow, nothing to repair around the house at the present time, nothing stirring in the nearby village or the firehouse where he often hung out with a volunteer or two who wandered in, no interesting case to occupy his mind. He was simply bored and tired of August. After years as an arson investigator, more years as a New York City homicide detective, the ever-constant pressure of living in the city, now inactivity and a quiet life had pr proved to be more difficult for him to adapt to than either of them had ever considered. She went with him to meet the woman who had called earlier. Trisha Corning, the woman said inside the foyer. She extended her hand to Constance, then to Charlie. Thanks for seeing us on such short notice. My steward, my nephew, Stuart Bainbridge, and Dr. Rasmussen. She indicated the man and the woman who had entered with her. Trisha Corning was slightly built, with hair turning gray at the temples, a flawless complexion, and lovely brown, heavily lashed eyes. She appeared to be in her forties, but when she smiled, she looked years younger. Hers was a slightly crooked smile. Stuart Bainbridge had the same lopsided smile and pretty eyes. Six feet tall, muscular, he was deeply suntanned with brown hair, sun-bleached, almost blonde. Probably not yet thirty, Charlie thought, shaking hands with him. The third member of the party, Dr. Rasmussen, was a tall woman, sturdily built, not overweight, 
but strong-looking, with an air of authority that made Charlie think of librarians. Constance was reminded of her high school gym teacher, who had always covered her nose with zinc oxide when she led her class out to the field, pretending unawareness of the girl's amusement. Dr. Rasmussen's hair was nearly black, short and straight, and neatly framed her face like a helmet. With prominent black eyebrows, dark blue eyes, with an unwavering frank assessment of both Charlie and Constance, little makeup, she was upper management, Charlie decided. She would take charge, if given half a chance. He was closing the front door when another car pulled into the driveway and a third woman emerged and headed toward the door. Too high heels, too much leg, too much cleavage, Charlie thought watching her. I'm Pamela Brainbridge, she said drawing near. I'm with them. She jerked her thumb toward Trisha Corning and Stuart. Trisha took a step back and two spots of color flared on her cheeks. For heaven's sake, you followed us? You bet I did, Pamela snapped. No secret deals while my back is turned. Stuart's hands clenched for a moment, then relaxed. She's married to my father, he said coldly, and she has no business here. I have his power of attorney. I'm acting on his behalf. Pamela Bainbridge raked him with a contemptuous gaze, then said to Charlie, I have as much right as anyone else. He's trying to cut me out and I won't be cut out. She was what Charlie thought of as conventionally pretty, 30, 35, features in the right place, makeup skillfully applied, bottle blonde, good figure draped in a sundress cut too low, with a tiny jacket over her shoulders, and instantly forgettable. Another blue-eyed blonde, too young to be the wife of a man old enough to be Stuart's father. Well, it's turning into a regular convention, he said. Come on out to the back porch, where it's marginally cooler than the house. A few minutes later, seated with beer for Charlie, Stuart, and Pamela, iced tea for the others, Charlie said, What brings you all out here? Trisha leaned forward, put her glass on the table. What I'd like to do is give you an outline of our problem, with just a few details, until you decide if you'll help us. She waited for his nod, then continued. About six months ago, my brother Howard was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. He was given six months to a year. While in New York at that time, he went to his lawyers and had a will written. Last month, he died of a self-administered overdose of prescription drug. His lawyer contacted us about the will, which was to be read in Howard's house with his siblings and Dr. Rasmussen present. That took place three weeks ago. According to the will, we each get to choose one item from the house. She paused, picked up her glass, sipped tea, then said, each sibling can remove one object from the house and afterward will not be admitted again. After six weeks, the property will be donated to Stillwater College Dr. Rasmussen is the president of the college, the reason she's at, she was at the reading of the will. Charlie didn't look at his watch, but he moved his arm in such a way 
that a glance at it would not be too obvious. There were cases that he absolutely had no interest in hearing about and much less interest in agreeing to work on. Lost dogs, divorces, missing spouses, instar pilfering, and family squabbles over wills and money, he added to himself. Definitely, family squabbles over wills. The problem, Tricia was saying, in a voice that had become much tighter, is that when Howard was in New York seeing specialists and writing his will, he also went to his broker and ordered all his holdings to be liquidated and converted to be cash to be transferred to his bank. After that was done, he went to his bank and withdrew $5 million in cashier's checks, each one for $100,000, and nobody knows where that money is. Charlie expelled a soft whistle. How many siblings are you talking about? I have three brothers, and each one of you can take one thing from the house? I suspect there's a bit of tension in the air along about now. Pamela made a rude, snorting sound, and Tricia looked pinched. She nodded. Doing all that in New York should have taken a couple of weeks, maybe longer. Any idea if he made any other trips after that? Charlie asked. He went home the day after he withdrew the money, and there's no record of any other trip. No charges on his credit card, receipts, nothing like that. His housekeeper said he didn't leave again. None of your brothers has a clue about what he was up to? She shook her head again. Hesitantly, she said, I was the only one he kept in touch with. Well, I should say I kept in touch with him, with all of my brothers. I don't think any of them kept, kept in touch with each other. I know he didn't. Looking at her hands tightly clasped in her lap, Tricia said, One more thing about the will. He specifically stated that there was not to be a service, that he was to be cremated, and his ashes thrown into Stillwater Lake. No family members were to be present. Charlie glanced at Constance, who he was certain had signaled with invisible fingers on his spine. Her nod was imperceptible to anyone but him, he was also certain. He waited. Mrs. Corning. Why was there such animosity toward his siblings? Constance asked. Tricia looked startled by the question and hes hesitated before responding. You're right, she said. Years ago, when we were all young, there was an accident. Howard's fiancé died in a boating accident, and he was injured in a coma for several days. When he recovered, he was changed. I think he suffered post-traumatic brain disorder or something. We had always been very close, at least the boys had been, but after that accident, never again. He withdrew from all of us and never had anything to do with the family after that. As I said, I kept in touch with all of them, but he never called me or got in touch with me himself. He came to see us, Pamela said, with a touch of malice in her voice. After William and I got married, he dropped in out of the blue. I didn't know that, Tricia said, clearly surprised. She looked at Stuart. You met him? No, I was still in school. Dad told me he came. 
stayed a couple of hours, and left. He didn't say where he was going, where he had been, or why the visit, and nothing. Dad said it was the first time he had seen him since they were both young. I'd never even heard about the accident before, he said. Nearly 30 years ago, Trisha murmured. Little reason to bring it up now, I guess. Charlie turned to Dr. Rasmussen, who had not said a word, or moved either, as far as he was aware. How well did you know Howard Bainbridge? Did he confide in you? I never even met him, she said. Her voice was even, the words not actually clipped, but decisively crisp. This donation was a total surprise. On returning to school, I looked him up in the records in order to see if he had ever been a donor over the years. He had not. His only connection to the college, some years ago, was when he sponsored a complete scholarship and living expenses for a girl named Andrea Briaki. At the mention of the name Andrea Briaki, Trisha gasped and straightened in her chair. Charlie turned to her. Good heavens, she said. She saved his life. That boating accident I mentioned, it was on Stillwater, Stillwater Lake, and a little girl saw it happen, a rowboat sinking, people falling into the water. She called her mother, who called 911, then called a neighbor with a motorboat to come to the rescue. The little girl was eight or nine years old. She was Andrea Briaki. Is she still in the area? Charlie asked Dr. Rasmussen. She shook her head. I looked her up, too. She was 19 when she attended Stillwater College, then dropped out after three years when she was a senior. She died before my time, 10 or 12 years ago. She drowned in Stillwater Lake. Some kind of accident. I don't know the details. Pamela cried. Oh my God, the curse. It was the Bainbridge curse. Things got interesting for a minute or two, Charlie thought, leaning back in his chair watching. Stuart leaped to his feet, his his fists clenched. He looked ready to jump over the table and throttle Pamela. Trisha caught his arm and told him to sit down, and Constance stood up. Charlie almost wished that Stuart had tried to get to Pamela and imagined her surprise when Constance floored him. She had enough black belts to piece together a quilt and she taught a variety of martial arts. It was not to be, however. Trisha's grasp of Stuart's arm, her words were enough to make him subside, sink into his chair. Rasmussen, meanwhile, had tried to merge herself with the back of her chair. When Stuart sat down again, as tense as a cornered cat, Constance picked up the tray and walked to the door. I'll bring some more tea. Beer, anyone? Might as well bring three, Charlie said. Inwardly, he was cursing. She had been as ready as he had been to heave them all out, take their money fight someplace else. But she had signaled that it was not going to happen. More tea, more beer, more questions and answers. There was a curse to be run to ground, and by God, she would run it to ground. He regarded Pamela sourly, and wanted to throttle her himself. Either she was one hell of an actress, he thought then, or she really believed in some kind of a goddamn curse. Her outcry had been spontaneous, reflective. Chapter 1
So, of course, our heroes have to go to Stillwater Lake and they have to get involved in murders and there are murders while they're there <laughs> and the usual upset conditions <laughs> harass them all the way. <laughs> but they come out okay. And they won't get a bit older. <laughs> Do you have any questions that you'd like to ask me? Yes. It's only on an e-book It will be on e-book for the time being. <laughs> yeah, for the time being. We hope... Uh, is. Richard here? Yeah. Oh, there you are. Richard is uh, going to head up our company, uh, Infinity Box Press. He is the one who's doing all of the hard part. All I do is write. <laughs> I, I don't know how to do anything but write. So that's what I do. And he can answer any questions about the press itself. We will have print-on-demand books, but I don't know when. Maybe he does. So uh, thanks for the question about e-books and the availability of print books. What we're going to do initially is uh, release Kate's legacy books and her new books as e-books. Uh, we just began Infinity Box Press in November. We are doing an official launch next week when the website is actually up. Uh, so we're going live with the website next week. Uh, it's infinityboxpress.com, and I hope you all can come look at it. Uh, to do ebooks to begin with, it's a, a brave new world out there, as uh, as we all know in publishing. And so, what we're hoping to do uh, at the beginning uh, after ebooks is go to print on demand. Uh, what we will probably avoid doing is offset printing. Um, so, what we're used to seeing in actual books and so forth. Uh, we'll probably avoid doing that, uh, just because it's the cost for the uh, reader is very high for a book these days, and we can keep those costs down, um, make our author happy, and still be able to uh, run a business and get great work out there. So hopefully we can do this. So the question is, um, when did you know when you started writing when you were younger? Uh, when did you realized that you wanted to be a writer and kind of okay. fell in love with writing. Okay. I, I get that question quite a bit. I told the story. I, when I was small, I had a speech impediment. Nobody could understand a word I said. Um, so I was rather isolated. I told myself stories, and I learned to read very, very young. By four, I was a reader. But nobody could talk to me because I, I knew what I was saying, and it made perfect sense from the day I was born, but nobody else could understand a word of it. And that went on until I was in kindergarten and had speech therapy. So after that I was cured, but I was in the pattern of being rather isolated and amusing myself and telling stories and reading. And that persisted all of my life. I've been a storyteller all of my life. I told my siblings stories. I told neighborhood children stories. I wrote stories in school. I wrote fantasies in my daydreams. And I did this all through uh, until I was 28 years old. I was reading. I, I graduated high school, got married almost instantly, had two small children. I was 28 years old. One child was two years old, taking a nap. The other child was in school. And I was reading an anthology of stories. And I came to one that I thought was very bad. And I said to myself, 
I can do that. And I had a line notebook, a big, big school thesis um, report type notebook, line paper. I wrote a story. I rented a typewriter, and I typed the story. It took me longer to type it than it took me to write it because I was a lousy typist. I'm still not a good typist, but I'm fast. <laughs> Sent the story to a magazine called, um, it was at that time called Astounding. I got the name from the anthology where the stories had been previously published and then appeared in the anthology. I didn't know a single writer. I had never met another writer. I didn't know an editor. I didn't know how to prepare a manuscript. I knew nothing. <laughs> So I started at the top. My manuscripts looked, this is cleaner, but they look sort of like this. I started at the top of the page and filled it, and then I filled another page, and so on. So I didn't have any formatting skills, didn't know how. And I sent it off to John Campbell at, Amaz at Astounding Stories, and he bought it. And he sent me a letter saying he accepted the story, but I had to sign and have notarized an affidavit that I was the author. I thought this must be standard. So I did it, and I sent it back, and he sent me a check for $127. I bought the typewriter I had been renting, and I've been writing ever since. <laughs> that was in 1956. <laughs> that started me. <laughs> yes. You you put them in the cellar and lock the door. <laughs> no, I I'm by nature nocturnal, and it's just easy for me to stay up late at night and do my writing, do things that other people might do in the daylight. So I devoted my days pretty much to family. I took care of my kids. They they grew up okay, <laughs> and they came out of the cellar now and then. So. Uh, the family by day and writing by night. What I found was that I trained myself to work through entire stories without approaching a typewriter or paper. And I'll work through an entire novel before I put a word on paper. What I do put on paper are house plans. I need to know where people are in their houses. I need to know where the doors are. <laughs> So I, I do house plans, and I do a list of characters because I need the names. And uh, in my imagination, people come together and start talking, but they don't say who they are. And so when I start to write, I have somebody here and somebody here, and they're talking, but who are they? So I, I try to provide myself a list of names. I say, oh, you're John Doe. I know who you are. And that's about all the preparation I do, and the rest I do mentally. I could do that while I was ironing. I could do it while I was taking children for a walk. I could do it while I was weeding the garden. Any of things, these things that are sort of mindless, I was writing. I was preparing to write. And the kids in bed at nighttime, I was writing. And that's, that's how it worked for me. Other women I know, this is a common question. Other women I know, uh, one in particular said she got up an hour and a half before anyone else in her family. So she got up at 5 o'clock 
and spent an hour and a half writing before others had to get up and get them ready for school or work or whatever. So writers find the time. Uh, it isn't easy. It is not easy. But writers find the time. You give up something. You give up television or you give up the night out or you give up you give up something. But it's worth it for me. Yes? Is there another Barbara Holloway in the works? Yes. There is one already uh, written that will come out. Well, I'll tell you this story, too. Why Infinity Box Press got started. In the fall of last year, I turned in a big, sprawling Barbara Holloway novel. The way they do, they tend to spread out and spread out and involve so much stuff. So it was a big, spreading novel. And um, my editor liked it, accepted it, no problem. And then I got a contract. And they have changed their contracts drastically from the time I had previously signed one. And the new contracts wanted your baby's foreskin, <laughs> your eye teeth, the deed to your house, uh, everything. All electronic rights to be decided by them how to be exploited, when and if they would ever be uh, return to the writer, and probably never, because they had a clause in there that they would revisit the contract once every 10 years to see if they needed revision of the contract. It had various clauses in it that uh, I told my agent I couldn't sign, and I wrote a letter for him to pass on to the contract department stating my problems with their contract and suggesting changes, and they turned on every single one. So I pulled the book. I said, they can't have it. My agent said, well, what are you going to do with it? Uh, because the big six, they're big six trade publishers, and they rule the world of publishing, and they're all adopting the same kind of contract with the same kind of ebook uh, restrictions and They'll, they'll keep every single thing they possibly can, and then some. So um, I said, well, there's no point in sending it to somebody else if they're all going to have that same contract. And he said, well, they are. This is the new standard, and you might get this change or that change. They had worked on it for six weeks, the agency, and they had gotten a few changes. But by the time I had it, it was still so bad that I couldn't do it. So I pulled the book. And that book will be available as an e-book later this year, and then as a print-on-demand book this year. And I want to stress, it wasn't the money. It was who controls the rights to it. And I said, you can't do that. And I'm hoping other writers will. I know many writers are backing out of um, the big six contracts because the same kind of thing. They rule the world. and. Uh, some of us say, not me, not me, and I'm one of them. And whether or not, you know, it succeeds is beside the point. I'm too old to care anymore. <laughs> yeah, those days are gone. I don't care if it's successful or not. I hope for my kids' sake it is, but uh, not for mine. They need to have people say no. The corporations need to have real people stand up and say, no, you can't have it.
So that's what I did. Yes. Do you have a favorite book you've written? Oh, no. <laughs> no, usually it's the current book or the last one I've done. You know, the, the last born child is your favorite, your baby is your favorite, or however that works. And I can't say I have a favorite. Right now I'm so involved in a new one that I'm working on that um, I can't even... Somebody asked me for name a few titles. All I could think of was this one that doesn't have a title yet. <laughs> the title is always the last to come. <laughs> so, uh, no, I have no favorite. Well, thank all of you. You're a good audience, and I appreciate you coming and asking questions and having the patience to sit through it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.